the city of Homestead, Florida feels like the end of the world. Really, if the Earth had an end point, it would likely be in Homestead, just south of the last gas stations on the mainland of Florida. I'm driving my car just after 6 in the morning and nearly every car seems to have the same trajectory. There are no more highways down here, even the turnpike falls away. The last stop for food is a dinky bar with a silhouette of Bigfoot on an outer wall. With the sky still a blue-gray tone as the sun hadn't crested the horizon, I loaded myself into my car, put on some Lizzo, and took off toward the Florida Keys. I had never visited the Florida Keys before. In fact, this was only my second time near Miami, and I barely would call this a visit. My family, as I've mentioned, were annual visitors to the Gulf of Mexico, enjoying the towns of Clearwater, Sanibel, and Naples more often than those in southeast Florida. My parents, however, honeymooned in Key West, yet I had never set foot on a single key. When I first charted my course south, I couldn't believe the travel time that Google Maps spit out to me. I knew Miami was a good four-hour drive from Orlando, but Key West was another two and a half hours. How could that be? Wasn't Key West right next to Miami? No, in fact, it is not. Pardon my ignorance on the topic, but I never fully realized how far out into the ocean the state extended, nor how difficult it was to grasp. Because, like I said, Homestead feels like the end of the world, like nothing should or even could exist beyond this point. As I pushed south and found myself surrounded on all sides by high fences and wetlands beyond, I thought this might be my view the entire time. Beautiful wilderness as far as the eye could see. I had been in the Everglades several times now, surrounded by muck and water and mangroves and bugs, but this was really out there, really far beyond what I was prepared for. I would obviously be driving over two hours through flat, glistening ecosystems and stunning oceanic vistas. This presumption was immediately proven wrong when I hit Key Largo and discovered banks, motels, and fast food restaurants. Across the water, beyond the Everglades, there was just more humanity. I drove on and on passing beautiful hotels, unusual landmarks, stunning views. There was a memorial for the hundreds of veterans who died in 1935 when a hurricane struck the Keys and devastated the state. The same hurricane would effectively decimate crucial parts of Henry Flagler's railroad across the sea. The memorial was marble and quiet and far too important to be just sat on the side of the road and easy to ignore. Across another island, there was a key that was entirely covered by a private subdivision with massive homes covering every inch. One island, called Big Pine Island, had warning signs for deer. Driving over the speed limit is a strictly enforced violation, as there aren't believed to be many of these little deer at all. They are famously small in stature and in population, and the people of Big Pine would like to keep them safe. A sign denoting no-name key called my curiosity, and a brief detour led me down a mud-soaked road to an isolated island with just over 40 homes on the whole spot of land. Fishers lined the bridges with pelicans every few feet, and as I returned to the main road, I came to a screeching halt. I was enjoying the clear blue sky above me when a key deer darted in front of my path. It was impossibly small, just about two feet in height, with fresh fuzz-covered antlers sprouting from its little head. It stopped and stared at me from the side of the road. I stared back, lucky to have avoided a calamity. The deer watched, and I drove on. As I traveled, I was met by the telltale signs of Flagler's Railroad. Along several lengths of the road were bridges suspended over the water, long fallen to disuse. 
Metal bracers and stone pathways and wooden columns were crumbling apart. It was broad daylight, a crisp Saturday morning, but a chill ran up my spine at the skeletons that were these abandoned bridges. It was like a ghost watching you, wondering if you were grateful, appreciative, thankful for the work. All of the blood that had been shed so you could be traveling how you were traveling. One island that couldn't even be reached by road called Pigeon Island was a base camp for construction of Flagler's massive railroad. Even parts of the road that I drove along were once the route that trains owned by the father of Florida personally funded. Everywhere you looked, his influence reigned. And then, at last, I reached Key West. I drove into downtown on, what else, Flagler Avenue. It was Pride Weekend, and the city's population expanded. It took me just over three hours to travel from Homestead to Key West. For Henry Flagler, it took almost a decade. He spent the last years of his life entirely dedicated to reaching this final terminus for his railroad. Once it was done, he visited the island only once before dying at the age of 83 just over a year later, in 1913. But this is not about the end. This is about the beginning. Henry Flagler's final beginning. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. I've been exploring the life and legacy of Henry Flagler for the entirety of June. We've discussed his early life, his first ambitions, his arrival in Florida, his overwhelming grief, his staggering growth, and his ultimate successes. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes, I would strongly recommend you go back and give him a listen so that this story makes sense. Now, Henry Flagler has reached the 20th century and he was intending to complete what would soon be called the eighth wonder of the world, a train connecting Miami to Key West over the ocean. Nothing of the sort had ever been done before, but that hadn't stopped him yet. Chapter three. About a thousand miles south of Key West is the country of Panama, which, at the turn of the century, was still part of Colombia, their eastern neighbor. However, in 1903, the country had staged a revolution, backed by an alliance of foreign countries including America. The large industrial countries around the world were desperate for an easier connection between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. At the time, you would have to head all the way south, around South America, in order to reach one ocean from the other. Panama's location, however, had a strip of land thin enough to be excavated and have water flooded in with a man-made canal connecting the oceans. Colombia did not like this plan and refused the treaty that had allowed construction to begin. President Teddy Roosevelt did not take no for an answer. He approved the rebellion in Panama, halted train movements in the area, and sent a warship to the coastline. The rebellion lasted for a few days in November of 1903, but the deal was done. Panama was their own country, and America took advantage of their change. The canal's construction would begin shortly. Back in Florida, the availability of ports close to the canal was sparse. Most would have to travel all the way around the state of Florida and then make a move around Cuba in order to properly set off toward Panama. The Gulf of Mexico was wide enough to make the coastal cities up there unviable. America needed a port that could get from the country to their new canal, and they need it in about a decade. The canal would take some time, but systems needed to be in place by then. 
Luckily, America had a dot, way out in the ocean, but technically a part of the state. Just about seven square miles total, 130 or so miles from Miami, Key West is the last populated spot in a string of dozens of small islands extending along a coral ridge south of the state. Today, there is one major road that runs from Homestead to Key West, US Highway 1. Back at the turn of the century, the only way to get to this little island was by boat. That, however, did not mean that the key was unpopulated. Instead, in 1900, it had over 17,000 people. It had been that way for years with its population in the thousands since before the Civil War. By the time Flagler started building his overseas railroad, Key West had been the largest city in the state for years. Somehow, past the ocean streams and the coral ridge, humanity was blossoming in a spot isolated from most anywhere else. There had been two newspapers running on the island since the 1830s. Salvaging wrecked ships was an easy way to turn a buck. Then, salt was harvested from the oceans by massive boats, and the army soon set up a post as the Second Seminole War took over the state. Buildings sprouted up, and sponge harvesting became the new hit industry. Key West was a city of note. Hurricanes, however, were prone to Key West's shores. Key West, quote, has a 16% chance of being impacted by a hurricane during any Atlantic hurricane season, end quote. One report estimates that hurricanes hit the city directly every six years. Florida has very low elevation, and Key West especially, sitting just 18 feet above sea level. When the Great Hurricane of 1846 hit in October of that year, the developing city was almost completely wiped off the map. Quote, of 600 houses, all but eight were destroyed or damaged. End quote. This didn't in the slightest deter the residents of Key West. Hurricanes beat down the Keys time after time throughout the decades, but one trend proved true. The people never stopped showing up. Back in 2019, I parked a few minutes from the southernmost point of the United States, rented a bike, and found myself pedaling the streets along with hundreds of others. Roosters barreled from side streets, shocking me off my path. They've been here for over a century, the descendants of chickens released in the last few decades. They cluck along, sitting on rooftops, crossing streets, hanging out under cafes, and of course, screaming. The soundscape of Key West is unlike anywhere else. I zipped west toward Fort Zachary Taylor State Park. Every state park calls my name. This one in particular was a unique combination of a historical site and an ecological wonder. By the time my bike pulled up to the beach, I was sweating through my shirt. Florida is hot, but Key West is hot. The beach was crowded with people, as well as, to my surprise, iguanas. An invasive species that has been burgeoning since the 1960s, the green iguanas are the squirrels of South Florida. They climb trees, mull through dead leaves, scavenge for grubs, and scramble along the hot concrete. I've seen these iguanas before, but never in numbers quite like this. They sat in the woods along the walkways that led up to the unusual form of the Fort Zachary Taylor, named for our 12th president. The wall that faced the ocean was a strange angular shape of blackened stone. Across a small courtyard were older looking brick buildings. There was almost no one in the fort, a minor handful of guests shuffling along within the quiet walls. Leading up to the Civil War, this fort was on its way to becoming one of the most considerable military outposts in this part of the country. A few months before the war broke out in Fort Sumter, Union Captain James Brannan took the city. 
This same Captain Brandon would take Jacksonville in the battle we discussed in the first Flagler episode. The fort would continue construction during the war, and by 1866, it was complete. Its position during the war did ward off approaching Confederate ships, and when war came again in the form of the Spanish-American conflict over Cuba, the fort held strong. In the years between these two wars, Key West remained a massive producer of salt and sponge, but added cigars to their list. The army was still present across the island. Key West wasn't just a growing city anymore, it was a place. It wasn't, however, a destination. Then came our friend Henry Flagler. The beginning of the 20th century was off to a rocky start. Though we had created city after city for the past few years, the hotels and railroads hadn't actually broken even. Flagler hadn't turned a profit on this second endeavor of his. His money was still primarily flowing from Standard Oil, though his name had essentially been scrubbed from its history as it soared to even more power. His last living child was distant from him. His second wife was locked in an asylum for her crippling mental illness. His rival in Tampa had recently passed, and Flagler was facing 70 with a cloud of anguish over him. The only star in his sky, however, was Mary Lily Keenan. They had met almost a decade ago when she was 23, my current age, and he was 61. They were friends at first, but things got more intense as time went on. It became the topic of great speculation in gossip magazines, the aging Flagler being mocked for his new romantic endeavors. He was separated from his wife, and they became officially divorced after he bribed the state legislature with $125,000. A startling 10 days after his official divorce from Ida, Henry and Mary were married. Flagler's father Isaac had three wives himself, and now Henry had followed the same path. He was 72, she was 34. Whitehall, his final winter home in Palm Beach, was actually built to be Mary's palace. Flagler still struggled with social interaction, but his new young wife was a socialite, buzzing through parties in a flurry, leaving her stoic tycoon in the crowds, desperate to keep up. Still, she followed him as he expanded east of Florida into the Caribbean, building a hotel in Nassau and the Bahamas, opening a steamship company that would travel to Cuba and more, and charting a course toward Key West. His technological advancements up to now had been significant, but crossing the ocean would be doing the impossible. Friends would try to steer him off track, saying this could destroy him. One was then-president of Rollins College, my alma mater, George M. Ward, who said that Flagler needed someone telling him to not pursue every single thing that crossed his mind. He had expanded the road down to the end of the world, also known as Homestead. But by 1905, there was nothing anyone could do to deter him. America needed Key West to be a significant part of its economic flow. If the Panama Canal was going to succeed, Key West had to succeed first. The Florida Senate had passed a bill granting Flagler right-of-way for 200 miles down to the Keys on May 3rd of 1905. Flagler gave the order, get to work. The trigger had been pulled. He gave them a deadline, January 1st, 1908, 32 months to cross an ocean. The first stop was Key Largo. There wasn't much ocean between Homestead and that first key, but there was a sea of grass, marsh, and sawgrass as far as the eye could see. This site kept most white men out of the Florida wilderness, and when a party went out in search of a clear path, they only survived thanks to friendly members of the Miccosukee tribe. 
Eventually, huge dredging machines started carving canals for the water to flow out of the path and leaving exposed land open to be built upon. Labor camps started springing up and, as Flagler required more and more labor, their treatment was put under national scrutiny. Though Flagler was popular along Florida's east coast, he was still considered a robber baron nationally, the type of man who will screw over anyone in order to further his empire. This isn't false, though it's a bit extreme. Flagler was, however, using hiring agencies to provide men for his railroad. These agencies would target marginalized populations like the homeless or migrants, promise them high wages and a great job down in Florida, and then shipped them to a swamp and paid them a dollar. When they would make a break for it, they would be captured, brought back, and had their pay removed. They were basically prison laborers. Flagler himself obviously wasn't running the camps personally, but these were his men running these miserable conditions, and Flagler's response didn't help. Rather than taking action against his employees who were running the camps in this way, he blamed the American government for the whole drama. Flagler, of course, wanted his workers treated well, but when it all fell apart, his anger was with the perception and not with the reality. By fall of 1906, the workers had made it about 40 or so miles, with work camps scattered across Key Largo, Isla Morada, and Long Key. Hurricane season had been quiet, but the workers still had rudimentary understanding of pressures. If a hurricane was coming, they'd know, but only right before it made landfall. Such was the case on the morning of October 17, 1906, when wind whipped across the keys, blackening the sky and sending workers careening. Water flooded over the shores and destroyed structures all along the work camps. A houseboat where over a hundred men were living was ripped to shreds and slammed against a reef. Days passed after the storm as larger ships plucked survivors from the ocean. When all the estimates had been made, the official death toll of railroad workers was 125 but the records may be inconsistent. One report lists the deaths at over 200. The man who was running the project, Joseph Meredith, believed in forward momentum. He wanted to keep going. Flagler, who had not visited the project in some time, agreed. Despite losing a stunning 5% of their workforce and about 16 miles of track to a random act of nature, this railroad would be built. It took nearly a year for the construction to pick back up. During that time, public view of the Flagler Railroad became that of extreme criticism. The company had been indicted for their labor charges in March of 1907, and now Flagler was forced to defend his project. It reached its peak in December of that year when Henry was hospitalized due to a minor liver issue. He was 77 after all. Speculative reporters in the state claimed that the man was close to dying and that his final project would remain incomplete. In reality, 2,500 men were back at work and the federal indictment was dropped due to shady witness testimonies. Trees were falling left and right and island limestone was being dug apart in order to create more solid bases and clearer paths. Low-lying bridges had crossed the Atlantic Canal slowly but surely. The two-and-a-half-year deadline Flagler had given was approaching quickly, but the railroad was only about two-thirds of the way through. The expanses of water were just getting larger now, and Flagler's men didn't need to just skip from key to key. Now they had gaps between islands that were miles long and would require a level of construction they had yet to face. Tracks had been built across several islands further south already, but a bridge between Long Key and Vega Key posed a new threat. The bridge, when it was done, would be remembered by Flagler as his favorite. It's called the Long Key Viaduct. 
It was made up of over 180 stone archways that ran along the path with a railroad built on top that careened across the crashing sea. It is the very same bridge that I saw while I was marching south along the overseas highway, the same one that seemed to haunt me or watch me. You only need to see it with your own two eyes to really understand how incredible it is, a monument of certainty. Flagler, though brilliant, had no idea how it was actually done. He once told his men, quote, all you have to do is build one concrete arch and then another, end quote. This is hilariously oversimplified. The workers were building into miles of ocean, ocean that didn't just stop being an ocean when they were working in it. Imagine the amount of effort it took to do just one arch. Flagler's team did nearly 200. His victories often came in bright, shiny packages. He didn't just oversee incredible feats of engineering. There would often also be a glamorous, shiny monument to denote his success. His hotels were often like markers, pointing out his successes like graffiti tags that read Flagler was here. Now, he had a glorious, arch-laden bridge across the ocean, and in early 1908, a passenger could travel 477 miles of continuous Flagler Railroad from Jacksonville to Knights Key. He had just under 50 miles to go to reach Key West. He hadn't met his deadline, but he had done something utterly remarkable. Then, his project manager died. Joseph Meredith passed on April 20th, 1909. This man had been Flagler's proxy in the Keys, running the show and managing the men. Unbeknownst to anyone, Meredith was diabetic, and the constant traveling and sweltering conditions weakened him slowly until there was nothing left. Flagler had always survived on the men who he employed. He had a keen eye for quality and knew how to recruit the perfect man for the job. Carrere and Hastings were the perfect men to design the Ponce de Leon Hotel. James Ingram was the perfect man to connect the railroad to Miami. Joseph Meredith had been the perfect man for the Key West extension. Except now, with no warning, he was dead. And to make matters worse, a nine-mile bridge over the ocean was the next step. Meredith's second-in-command, William J. Crome, had to decide. Were they going to cross this expanse now, or wait for the hurricane season to pass? He decided to cross it now. A letter from Crome to Flagler at this time reads, There is no harbor along the entire line of the grade that is safe from hurricanes. We must be ready for when it comes. We must have the workmen well in hand to prevent panic. End quote. When the hurricane did come, ready they were not. How could you be? Nearly three years to the day after the last major hurricane hit the Keys, another struck on October 11, 1909. The winds were up to 125 miles per hour, and escaping workers clung to the railroad itself to keep from flying away. Forty miles of railroad were crumpled up and thrown away. The effects were as such due to, of course, the construction itself. Natural water flow and the keys would not have been so affected by the flooding and the tidal waves. Because the spinning water had nowhere to go, momentum and force would build up and batter the islands to devastating effect. The true impact of these ecological diversions would not be fully seen until the 1930s, but we'll get to that next week. Regardless, the new bridges would have to create an artificial flow to prevent damages like this. Five long years, and the Keys were still teaching Flagler's team new lessons. In Key West today, Pride had taken over Duval Street. 
Booths sold merchandise, visitors wore vibrant colors, driving music wafted from open bars, and the whole city was alive. Key West is already a brilliant shiny island, but Pride had made Duval even more dazzling. As my bike took me north away from Pride, I passed more and more visitors in rainbow and glitter, ready to celebrate. There is a museum far in the north called the Sails to Rails Museum, where tour buses will pick up visitors to travel the roads to visit the Hemingway House, the docks, and more. Sitting on a bench, his eyes facing the southern sky, was a large metal model of Flagler. His gaze was set on his beloved horizon. Inside, I bought an extremely overpriced ticket so that I could step into this small museum. The first room was a curved hallway lined from floor to ceiling with historic memorabilia of sailors, fishermen, and the early navy in Florida. The next door led outside to a porch where a sprawling map of Florida blinked a path denoting Flagler's railroad from Jacksonville to Key West with large yellow lights marking his hotels. Standing over Florida like an omnipotent being, I'm sure, was meant to hold some metaphorical significance, but I don't believe Flagler ever saw himself this way. He definitely had a savior complex, but he never wanted to rule Florida. A small movie told of Flagler's journey and a makeshift rail car was lined with every archival photo of Henry out there. A display on one end of the rail car featured every type of bridge along the original railroad. A classic uniform for a Flagler railroad conductor sat next to the door. But the most stunning feature of this museum glared at me from the back of the room. A photorealistic statue of Henry Flagler sat behind a glass case. He was maybe five and a half feet tall with a soft fabric of some kind making up his face and skin and cheeks. His white hair was pushed back and his huge mustache hung over his tight lips. His eyes looked stern, peering out at you from behind the glass. I was the only person in the museum and Flagler felt real, watching me, staring out at me. There's no deep emotional meaning to this encounter with this statue. He honestly just scared the hell out of me and I could barely enjoy the room. I bolted. The real Flagler, not the terrifying statue, was 80 years old when yet another hurricane hit the Keys in 1910, devastating construction yet again. The work, however, could not stop. They needed to arrive before the old man expired. Flagler's lifetime was now longer than his rival, Henry Plants, who had been over 10 years older than him. Time was running short. His men were acutely aware of how much Flagler didn't just want the project done, he wanted to see it done. Over 500 miles of railroad would be in his name. If the fear of his legacy dying behind him is what kept Henry up at night, seeing it done before he was gone seemed the only peace their employer could have. They bought up land on Key West, built the Seven Mile Bridge, and found themselves on the other side of their task. It had been nearly seven years, about four years longer than their original deadline. But on January 21st, 1912, the railroad out of Knight's Key opened. Flagler hopped on his private rail car from Palm Beach, 82 years old, half blind, and ready to reach the end of the line. It is believed that this was the densest gathering in American history up to this point. Senators, international emissaries, Florida nobility, and the residents of Key West gathered at the railroad's terminus, waiting all morning for the arrival of the father of Florida. It was 10.34 a.m. Henry Flagler cried as he stepped off of the car onto Key West. Children sang, a band played, and the old man savored every second. 
To the crowd, he said, quote, I thank God that from the summit, I can look back over the 25 or 26 years since I became interested in Florida with intense satisfaction at the results that have followed, end quote. It was dubbed by newspapers the eighth wonder of the world. The celebrations went on for days. Everyone knew what this meant. Flagler could take even prosperous cities and turn them into places that were known worldwide. It was conceivable now for a New Yorker to get on the train in his city and in a few days be in an oceanfront villa in Key West. As he boarded the train to return home, Flagler turned to one of his co-workers and said, quote, Now I can die happy. My dream is fulfilled. End quote. He never visited the island again. He always had a horizon to chase. It was like he couldn't sleep without heading south, moving and moving and moving and moving. Key West today bears his name everywhere, old photos in restaurants and statues on street corners. If Flagler dreamed of a legacy that could never die, of a place in history that would never forget him, he had achieved it. That final comment on the island of a dream fulfilled tells you exactly where old Henry's head was in the last year of his life. He was drained, but he had done it. There was no more iron to lay. He fell down a flight of stairs in his home in Palm Beach. The injuries were significant and eventually took him. Henry Flagler passed on May 23, 1913. The following is a quote from an article about Flagler in the New York Sun, published during the last few years of his life. It was written by Edwin Lefebvre. It reads as follows. You realize that you are before a man who has suffered and has never wept, who had undergone intense pain and has never sobbed, who has never bent under stress and has never hurrahed. Your great man is apt to be one with certain faculties overdeveloped and classifies easily, but Flagler is not like anyone else and withal is not eccentric. He is without reducing vices, without amiable inconsistencies, without obsessions. He simply does not classify. You cannot accurately adjectivize him. He does not defy analysis, he baffles it. Whether his veins run red blood you cannot tell, but you are certain it is not ice water. What color is it then? That is the mystery of the soul of Henry M. Flagler. Thank you so much for listening to Chapter 3 in this four-part series about the incredible life of the father of Florida. Be sure to share this episode with a friend or anyone else who you think will enjoy a good story. I think this is a pretty good story. It's also a really good road trip podcast, I've learned. Please consider leaving a rating or a review below. It is the best way for new listeners to find a little show like this one. You can follow the show and see updates as they come at WFMPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can send me an email at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'm looking for new topics as I prepare for year two, and I would love to hear what you want to hear. 
All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. The Flagler theme song is Echo's Boogie Dance Hall by Lobo Loco. The primary resource for this episode was Last Train to Paradise by Les Standiford. You can find links to the other resources in the description below. The Flagler series art was done by Lauren Nix. You can follow her on Instagram at lauren.nix.photo. That's Nix spelled N-I-X. Next week, the final chapter in the story of Henry Flagler. Chapter 4, Palaces of Ambition. The years following Flagler's death, the monuments of his legacy, and my final thoughts on our crucial tycoon. Be sure to tune in for that next Friday. You are not going to want to miss it. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please, please drink more water. Have a good one. <laughs>